Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and joined by security practitioners Matt Radelak, Killian Engler, and Forrest Temple. Troy Hunt created a poll on Twitter and asked if a user creates a weak password and then reuses it across multiple devices, and if one of the user's account gets compromised, should the user have partial responsibility? And then meanwhile, another security pro, Wendy Nathan, retweeted his poll to declare, we need to stop blaming users and then forcing the users to remember so many different passwords and the design of the passwords is inherently flawed. What were your reactions to this frequently debated controversy? Hey, this is Matt Radelak. One thing that this jogged for me is in the world without computers, we didn't ask anyone to memorize any passphrases, right? If they needed to get into their house, they had a key. If they had like a safe, maybe they had to memorize a combination, which might be a few numbers, but no one really had to memorize these complex statements. And then when passwords first came out, everyone was using very easy to memorize things like password, right? Or these very simple things like their their kid's birthday. But now we're asking people to memorize these very complex passwords. And I think that that is asking too much. Authentication does need to be stronger and depend on things other than people just remembering some passphrase. But that really ties back to just how typical authentication works and, and that it's always been based on that. So we, someone would have to come up with something better or just use weak passwords and use multi-factor, right? Multi-factor for 100% of the stuff doesn't matter if you have a eight-character password, which is Killian loves Veronis. Well, I guess I have to change my password now for everything. Thanks, Matt. This is Killian. So I would tend to agree with with Matt's reasoning there in terms of think of the number of services that we use on a day-to-day basis that require some type of password. I think, however, there are solutions out there in a lot of cases that can help with this, uh, password managers to help kind of set those up for people. And they're becoming pervasive enough where I'm not sure if there's an excuse not to have one anymore. Now they cost something and that's kind of a pain in the butt to have to pay another service charge for another service that you don't really think you need. But in some ways, it's almost like an insurance policy. You know, you pay the fee for the password manager and you can avoid some of the headache of having your account stolen and then having to call your bank or whoever else to get that sorted out. So there's one way to look at it. And I think Matt's entirely correct is the pervasiveness of two-factor and the ease of even doing the simple things. And I know it's not like the most secure thing, having like the code text into your phone. And there's plenty of ways to do that. You can um, have your phone cloned and things like that. Um, and it's not like an accepted strong authentication method, but it's easy enough that most people can adopt it. And it makes it just that much more difficult that if somebody steals a, a database of passwords, it should slow them down enough for your account. So I think there's enough things that it's pretty easy to implement and people understand now that it, it's not really an excuse anymore, I don't think. This is Forrest over here. And, you know, I'm kind of coming back to the what Troy kind of used as sort of his, I guess, his thesis there was kind of the, the reason passwords are so important is because it's the only thing that kind of everybody out there, whether they're versed in security at all or not, really has a has a simple conceptual understanding of. And unfortunately, I mean, I think the problem is that, that that's absolutely true. You know what I mean? Like we can talk about two-factor here and, you know, I think the couple of us here use two-factor pretty regularly and it's pretty common sense to us. But I mean, there's so many people out there who I think, you know, it's just not there yet. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's more and more, I think, regular folks out there, you know, not in the security or information technology world, like definitely are kind of coming around to it. But I honestly think it's probably going to be like another five or 10 years before, you know, we can really seriously get beyond passwords. as like the sole authenticator. I think we might even be longer. I think that the reasonings for 
passwords really ties back to, you know, to Windows and to early operating systems. And the model has been on passwords and it just hasn't changed. And so someone's just going to, I think more so than two-factor, someone's going to have to come up with something better. Thanks, guys. If you're a regular listener and enjoy your show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell others about the show. It helps them discover great podcasts like ours. So despite our opinions on passwords, and you guys briefly mentioned that passwords aren't going to go away for a while, Troy Hunt also, he wrote a detailed blog post on why passwords aren't going to go away anytime soon, that no technical innovation is going to replace passwords and biometrics will essentially enhance authentication and authorization, but it's not going to replace passwords. And so as we're looking at amazing breakthroughs in technology, and since so many security pros say that users aren't the enemy, and if passwords are indeed a technical design flaw, and fine, we have password managers, but if we can go back in time, what are some questions we can ask so that new technology we create won't be called technical design flaw? One thing that's really key to kind of pull out of this is how intuitive the concept of passwords was in the first place, and that's why it took root so easily and why other things maybe don't, you know? So, I mean, maybe one of the things to kind of add to the list of considerations for how much we should be trusting new technologies that rely on significant adoption is how easily are they going to be adopted and, and how extensively and how quickly. You know, there's a lot of things out there where their utility is dependent on how many people are using them. You know, there, there's certain, you know, network technologies, distributed technologies like that. And I mean, you know, you need to kind of think about how intuitive is this going to be for non-first adopters to adopt, right? And how appealing will it be? To take kind of what Farce said and take it a little bit further, ease of use is maybe even more critical. Farce point, you don't need anything for a password. You just need to remember something or think of something. And we all have that innate ability to, again, remember, we've been memorizing things since forever. So I think that's a big consideration is, is what's the ease of use and how is that going to be a barrier to entry? And a lot of times technology, we look at it as, you know, you have to have a cell phone and they're pretty pervasive now, um, or you have to have something. It's not always possible. People kind of adopt phones and they're very, very easy to use now. But that ease of use, I think, is going to be the best indicator for, uh, you know, the Apple Face ID. It's almost painless to use. You just kind of hold up the phone and you have it there for the most part anyway, and it logs you in. So that type of kind of smooth user experience is going to help with adoption. And, you know, going forward, we'll have to think of that. This is a perplexing question for me. I, w- I want to give the answer. And I don't think that our technology has that answer ready yet. I don't think there's something we could say, just do it. Yeah. I mean, it kind of makes me think the like FaceTime is so convenient and, you know, easily adopted. But then I'm wondering, you're kind of seesawing back and forth between that and how secure it is. Actually, I'll tell you the truth. I, I just don't really know how secure face, uh, the, was it, uh, face ID? Face ID. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember I'm thinking in my head, the thing I keep coming back to is everybody assuming fingerprints were so secure, but like, you know, biometrics, I remember you used to be able to beat a lot of fingerprint scanners with like a wet gummy bear. You know what I mean? I think was the old way that people would do it. And I'm just wondering, you know, how many, you know, things like this are we talking about? The adoption is easy, but in truth, maybe we shouldn't be considering it because it's actually not all that secure. Well, and I, and what's what makes me think about too, and you brought that up, is what if the next one we go to just isn't as secure, but we accept that for usability, right? Like what if Face ID is trickable, but it determines that it's good enough and overall better than, than passwords? Like what it makes me think about is like the concept of like a risk-based approach. So if you had, you know, like a really super important person, like intelligence officer or something like that, they shouldn't use Face ID, right? But a layperson could use Face ID because who's going to target and apply some sophisticated technique to bypass Face ID for someone who isn't necessarily accessing sensitive data or critical intellectual property all the time, right? So maybe the, the real thing is that we could get to a sliding scale where we have people authenticate with weaker authentication mechanisms that are more convenient based on risk. In truth, I mean, I think we already do that, you know, with, uh, was it cat cards? 
Yeah. Uh, you know, in the in the government and two factor, you know, you get down to regular kind of sysadmins nowadays. And then you get down to the just your my grandma's password, which I'm sure is just her pet's name for Facebook. You know, I think we already kind of intuitively have that tiered approach to authentication. So I love your risk based approach. I want to apply that to some of the amazing new advances we've seen or will be coming soon. Let's start with intermittent fasting and dieting. And for the longest time, we've been trying to hack our health and life. In Silicon Valley, they caught biohacking to fine-tune their personal health using testing results to indicate whether they can improve or fine-tune their current health methods. And so, for instance, there are startups where they can take your feces and tell you what's happening in your digestive system so that you'll know how to calibrate your health and to lose weight and achieve optimal health. Learning about your genes with 23 and me so you can eat and exercise that best flows with your genes. And so what are some things you need to think about with these companies from a product perspective, security and privacy perspective? Everybody here is at least familiar with a lot of the privacy and PHI regulation in the U.S. You know, we have HIPAA and then I don't even have to mention GDPR for all of the PII information. But that's the big thing is you know, you're trusting certain level of information, private health information, for example, to these companies. And it's hard to know how they manage and handle that type of information you're entrusting them. And you might think it's individually, it might not necessarily be that important. But if you take enough of those details together, it can form a, a much more clear picture of, you know, your health or the things like that. And it can be used in ways you don't really predict. And I think we've talked many, many times before about trying to read some of the statements on privacy that these organizations have and where they share your data and with who. And that kind of massive tree or web of um, interconnections on different organizations that can access your information for various reasons. Yeah, so I think this is all great stuff. I mean, we're, we're on like the forefront of genetic science being like the next big pillar of, of innovation. Um, and it's the early stages. The privacy concerns are huge. I'm not so concerned about the fact that this company has and can sell and share my genetic data as much as I'm concerned about like, you know, the worst case scenario, which might not apply to me personally, but someone has a genetic disease, right? Maybe they're, they know that they have a history of let's just say heart problems, right? Guys, pretty common thing for a family history of heart disease. What if a potential employer for a you know middle-aged employee looks at that and decides not to hire someone based on that kind of genetic information? That I get worried about, right? Like genetic discrimination. That's what I am most concerned about more so than like the, would it be bad if my DNA got leaked? I don't think that's such a, I'm super concerned about, I'm not worried about that from the implication of the general world. I'm just worried about when that information starts to get correlated into like intelligence on a person. And you could say, what happens when you get to the point where a dating app lets you know your genetic compatibility with another person? You know, I think that's the sort of dark places that I get concerned about with this type of research. Individually, those pieces of information, you know, your your genetic markers or whatever is not, it's valuable, but in a different way, but combining that information together to make decisions about it on things that you might not even know about also. If your employer can figure out that you have heart disease or something like that, that you might not be aware of, you've never been diagnosed with it, but uh, these companies know this information about you through some analysis and are making determinations on your life based on it. The other thing too is you can't really change your genetic code. Yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. That's the scary part. There's literally nothing we can do about our genes. Hey, that's the great thing about password though. You can change that whenever you want to. <laughs> as far as like the other question, 
startups and you know around like these these companies like like Viome. This is great. These services are going to help people achieve their health and you know possible overall life quality goals because we're just going a layer deeper than we have in the past. And I think that is huge for science and the advancement of humanity. Have you read about articles where even though people are buying the Fitbits and the health trackers, that it's not really changing people's behaviors though? Yeah, I struggled with my weight a long time ago. And even like subscribing to some sort of fitness thing or like buying a, a smartwatch, like that wasn't what got me to change. It, there has to be some sort of motivating factor that comes beyond the purchase that you make. And I think that like any kind of health or lifestyle choices, this is the same thing if you try to talk to a doctor about this stuff. They're going to try to set realistic goals for you to make small changes to your lifestyle. And buying a watch might not necessarily doing that. Buying a watch and saying, I'm going to hit my step count every day, that's absolutely a step towards a healthier lifestyle. You know, and I think that those watches are made for that. But if you just buying the watch isn't enough. You have to commit to the lifestyle changes. And that's like something that there's no product that can force someone to do that. And also on the elevator to work today, I saw that your genes don't determine your future health and that it really is a lifestyle that you create. So even though we do have those concerns too, that hopefully managers and businesses would realize that genes don't determine everything. Since we're talking about our DNA, let's talk about the terms and service of and Ancestry.com. It's sort of like a sibling of 23andMe, except with their alarming terms and conditions. Uh, for instance, even after you die, they own the rights to your DNA. And even if you've never used Ancestry.com, but if one of your relatives have, that company might already own portions of your DNA. What were your reactions to these terms and conditions? I actually wonder what's going to happen when there's like competing clients from different because I mean people are signing away the these rights I mean pretty pretty easily but I'm wondering you know what happens when the you know two different large you know with a large amount of legal resource uh type conglomerate organizations kind of come into legal conflict over you know, something that was arrived at via genomes or, or genomic data that they have the rights to. It's not really an answer to the question, but I'm just really curious in you know, maybe a decade or two when we start to run into those. Yeah, I, I'm with Forrest on this. With most legal problems where you know some sort of t- it starts as terms and conditions, eventually this will make its way to regulators and regulators will decide the fate of our DNA. In the current state, though, while it's the Wild West, companies are going to lay make outrageous claims. And I received the DNA test kit as a Christmas gift and was the only person in the family. There was like, you know, like all 15 or 16 of us got one and uh, for my mother-in-law. And I was the only person to read the terms and conditions and I pointed all this stuff out and no one seemed to mind. And at the end, I didn't I didn't really mind either because I, I believe that at some point regulators are going to step in and say, you know, this is what you can do with a person's DNA or from a privacy standpoint, this is, you know, what you can do with it. Even if I've signed it away, you know, those types of regulations would eventually overtake that. But it's, it's just one of those things where, you know, companies are going to try to get as much as they can, right? Just like uh, when you go to work for an organization and you have to say that, you know, they have a right to any patents or works that you develop. I think this is no different. If you're going to give your DNA to someone, it's to assume they're going to keep it indefinitely, right? And have it apply some level of authority over it. But at the end of the day, it's just a string of numbers. Interestingly, it reminds me of GDPR provision about the, actually it might be outside of GDPR, the right to be forgotten. You know, yeah. the, um... And biometric information is under the scope of GDPR. So DNA would fall under that scope. I actually had this question get asked by a client because it actually calls out biometric information in inside of GDPR. I was just going to say the, the thing that pops into my head is, you know, the ability to, uh, there was something in this article we were all talking about, about requesting your information be deleted. You have to go through a million hoops 
or whatever. But my understanding is, at least in the European debates over GDPR, you know, there was questions about, you know, you know, being able to be deleted from search results and things like that. And, I, you know, I think the regulators did come down on the, the side of consumer protection in that regard. Yeah, for the data subject access request. That's right. And they did. You're absolutely right. You can, under GDPR, ask a company to delete your biometric information. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering, I mean, I think the, the new California compliance set, I believe, is, is largely modeled on GDPR. And I'm actually, now that I think about it, I'm kind of curious to see if it's if it's in that. We should look into that. Might be a good topic for our next IOSS. I think just to kind of reiterate a little bit what Matt said too, is the legal claims they're staking out in the um, terms and services. I mean, and I'm not a lawyer, but I think they're too broad to ever enforce anyway. It's like me showing up in the bank and being like, nah, uh, I'm going to go ahead and you know withdraw some money from Matt's account because we're totally cool. That's fine. And them letting me do it. It's the same way of signing away your, you know, somebody else's rights based on the DNA match that you you might have. So I think that if it comes down to it, there's all these terms, you know, about forcing arbitration and things like that. I think that it's going to hit the courts and, and eventually it's going to bubble up and it's not going to be enforceable, I don't think. It seems just way too broad. On this podcast, we've talked a lot about how one set of data point isn't inherently dangerous, but that if you combine it with a bunch of other things, let's say you have heart problems plus something else, it can reveal further damaging information. And so that's what happened with some CIA spies where Iranians use the OPM breach with some advanced Google search terms and they're they're able to identify who were double agents. And I know we might not really know the true story of how it all unfolds, but to hear a scenario like this is a little alarming. And this is the sort of thing where prescient knowledge of security and privacy, where it would be helpful. Be But, you know, maybe because our world is so interconnected now, it gets a little unwieldy to manage. I actually thought this article was super interesting, just because of almost how low tech it was. They indicate that the Iranians or maybe the Chinese got some information from a double agent about this. But this kind of goes back to something that, you know, we're all security guys, at least here, and, and probably a lot of people listening, but the old adage that security through obscurity is no security at all. They didn't really go out of their way to hide or protect these websites. They just hoped that nobody else would find them and that would be good enough. The other thing that they mentioned too is it's not even really a great way to hide it because you know, Iran, China, they're very controlling of the internet traffic they have. So spotting these kind of weird and different websites probably was not all that difficult, even if they weren't tipped off to it. So there's, you know, kind of just assuming that nobody's going to find it is not really a good way to approach security, even though this was kind of designed for untrusted resources or unverified resources at this point. There needs to be something else. There needs to be a more covert way to do it than, hey, I'm going to slap up a website and hope that the uh, this other nation state doesn't find it. Yeah, this, I think this is amateur. And the person that made this decision cost people their lives. What this made me think about was the anonymous links on like Box and on like Microsoft Cloud on like OneDrive. So as you guys know, when you generate that anonymous link that anyone can access, it's a hash value that gets generated. And then you put that hash value into the appendices of the URL for OneDrive or for Box, and you can access that file with that link, right? In theory, you can guess those and find what you're after. The theory definitely applies to this covert communications channel. And I'm wondering if the sites that they use just didn't take the steps to generate as complex of you know hash values as Box or OneDrive did. But even then, I would challenge that someone with the resources of like Iran or China could could guess all of them. 
they would just pre-compute a rainbow table and visit every single possible value until they found the data that they were after. I mean, if I had a theoretical unlimited computing power, that's what I would do. And so I, I think this was amateur. I, I think that the person that came up with this likely didn't run it through like a technical, you know, security person or a technical communications person at the agency. And it cost people their lives. It's, it's tragic, it is, but it's an amateur mistake, right? I, I mean, any person with technology background would have been able to determine that the URLs could have been guessed. It's a, va- it's a very basic web application security checklist item. Yeah, I didn't want to be too judgmental <laughs> to start out, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, just reading through this, it was all kind of, you know, step one to step three was kind of common sense and how you'd get through this. You were completely dependent on the obscurity of people not using the service. You could have used WhatsApp or even iMessages and been more secure. So to round out our show, I'm wondering if there's old technology you think would be helpful for amateurs and leaders to remind themselves as we're developing new technology so that in the future they're they're minimizing their security and privacy risk profile. Uh, decoder rings. I was going to say one-time use pads. <laughs> one-time use pads are still, I think, used today. And that, that was first developed even as early as the Romans using Roman Caesar ciphers that had adjusting one-time use pads who told you the Caesar cipher to use. But I'm, I love I'm a huge cryptology person. I mean, we actually mind. kind of, I mean, maybe I'm a misunderstanding, but I think we kind of do that when you, you know, you, when you set up two-factor for the first time for some things, you know, there's the, the text file, the one-time use codes. Yeah, the one-time use codes. Yeah, those are exactly, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And the, the in World War II, they were really popular because his agents would get a notepad and that notepad would be in sync with only one other notepad and they would write the note on the notepad according to the instructions on the notepad and they would hand that note to someone and if the other person didn't have the corresponding pair notepad and that pair that paired notepad wasn't on the exact same page then the it would break sync and you couldn't read any of the messages and that was a low-tech way of accomplishing a sophisticated problem i think we could learn from that it's just that the challenges are in a hyper-connected world is all of the holes you don't think about you could develop a super secure secure messaging app with one-time passwords, but if it has a default credentials on the Apache web server that runs the back end, it doesn't make a difference. I don't do any communication online anymore. I do it all by carrier pitching, so. <laughs> Actually, and, I wish and, we could, but they're all extinct, right? Well, the other thing that I do too is I get a I get a stat of a certain size and I don't tell anybody the diameter except for who I'm communicating with and then I wrap my paper around it and write on that paper. So unless you know the diameter of the staff that I'm using via my carrier pigeon, you're not decrypting my messages. Thanks to Killian Engler, Matt Radelak, Boris Temple, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed our panel discussion, please subscribe to our show. You can find more episodes of the Inside Out Security Show on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, SoundCloud, and more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. It helps them discover great discussions like we have today. Thanks, guys. Hey, thank you, Cindy. You're a great host. We appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.